Hey, Sam, that was a really interesting interview with Charlie Raposo, Great Britain's number one World Cup GS skier. Um, for me, the thing that, that really stands out in this interview that I really enjoyed was uh, because of my sort of body awareness side of things, when he talked about the difference between his left and, and right foot a turn and, uh, and how one side was always, he was, he's, he's really put a lot of effort this, this prior season into getting that working better. But then right at the end, it sort of came out through a bit of a, a sample session, body alignment session, that he had actually broken his big toe on the side of his weaker turn. So, And uh, I just thought it was really interesting that there's some injury history there. And even Charlie mentions that oh, it's just my big toe. It's, it's, it's no big deal. But, but when we did some exercises and you and I watched him you know, load up his left foot versus his right foot. There was, there was a real difference in how his whole body moved forward and, and pressured it. And, and after even a couple of minutes, you know, of this exercise we did with him, he walked around and he goes, that's effing weird. <laughs> you know, I just, my big toe <laughs> feels really weird. Um, so, yeah, I found that a really interesting part uh, in, in, this, in this interview. What about for you? What did you enjoy? Yeah, I mean, that was super interesting. I've got to say, Tom, like, since we started working together, you know, I, I'm just constantly surprised about how you managed to, to bring out these things uh, in people. Um, and, and also that, you know, small injuries like that, they do have a, a big effect. So it'd be interesting to catch up with Charlie soon and see how he's uh, been dealing with that, with those exercises you recommended him. Um, for me, the, the thing that, I like the most because I definitely resonate with it is when Charlie was saying like, you know, he's not necessarily like the most naturally gifted athlete, even though he's a, obviously an incredible athlete now, you know, he was just saying how like, you know, from a young age, he was just absolutely obsessed with the sport and, you know, he did everything meticulously, like from tuning his skis to like um, following the world cup and like just knowing, you know, stats and stuff. And like, I remember, the same thing like when I was a kid and I got into it and just like knowing you know every winner of like every race like and just was like trying to look up you know runs from years before of like who won this and, and who won that and and then even like looking at guys like you know Ingemar Stenmark in the 70s and like and just like knowing the history of the sport and so on and like when he was saying that I was like it just really took me back so that was awesome um for anyone listening to this, like this is a really good interview um, for anyone who really wants to get in the mind of a, a World Cup skier, you know, and, and Charlie, he's been a really good friend of mine for a long time. I think I say that a bunch in the, in the podcast as well, but, <laughs> you know, like we, we're really good friends and I just knew that he was going to be just such a good guest to have on. So yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really uh, I agree. I, I think, I mean, I, I myself, you know, Aussies love an underdog and, you know, Charlie's that that underdog coming from you know not really a powerhouse skiing nation England and it's just so impressive that you know the level he's got to competition wise skiing on the World Cup and and on the Europa Cup getting getting points and so for me I'm just yeah really big admiration for the amount of effort he puts in even he mentions you know given his particular body circumstances the warm-up he has to do, like the dedication of like how long, even just before he skis, 
compared to, you know, yeah. he compares to Dave riding, you know, you just, you can hear that Charlie really wants it and he is putting like 110% in. So yeah, yeah that part's great. He, he totally is. And, um, you know, like he's definitely one to watch soon. And like, it's just so impressive how the British team in the past three years has just started like, and with Dave riding leading the way, they've just started to just switch it on. And now they have um, two other skiers, uh, slalom skiers. I think, you know, at the, at the time this is released now, they, they had a one, two in a Europa cup from Great Britain, Billy Major and Laurie Taylor. I'm not sure which one won, but this was just last week, a um, couple of days after the interview, Tom, that there was two British guys went one, two in a Europa Cup, which has never happened before, right? And Charlie's also had Europa Cup podiums in the past in GS. So uh, for everyone listening, definitely keep an eye on Great Britain. It's just amazing what these guys are up to. That's it. And, and we'll mention in here, just uh, we've got a one-of-a-kind, unique ski coaching program running that we basically try and cover the whole spectrum of what someone needs to improve their skiing. Is that right, Sam? Yeah, exactly. Um, if anyone's interested in, say, Tom was mentioning at the start, how, you know, he looked at uh, Charlie's body, looked at, tried to dig into his injury history and, and found some uh, correlations between, you know, Charlie's toe and back. You know, it's, it's funny because like Charlie, you know, he, he's, he's an athlete. He has his systems and so on. And I mean, it's, it's unlikely that you know like we were going to come in there mid-season and like make crazy changes but you know if if you if it sounds interesting to you and you want to you know learn say type of stuff that tom and i do for our bodies and how we uh you know view the way um, people should prepare for skiing and that's it how the joints move because i think it, it that one to me emphasizes how how much the whole bo- the body is, is a unit is so important. It's not like your core hips and knees and stuff mm. that, that should be strong. Like everything is relying on, on everything else because it's a closed system. So even the big toe joint, um, which he obviously had been ignoring since that, that accident at yeah. 18 years of age. Um, like I think that summarizes our approach, just checking everything. And, and the programs we run basically try and get you to go through and feel your whole body and then the the unique part is then we talk about how that relates to skiing um and particular parts of the turn and how you can apply that and so that's just yeah the body part is just one part of of, of the whole scope uh ski coaching thing this part is yeah. te- technique movement analysis tech talks all that sort of stuff so if you're interested in the show notes you can uh click the link and and head on over there and we, we've got a you know a lot going on but uh if you sign up we'll uh we'll do our best to to give you a sample uh consultation give you an insight and and have a look at your own skiing and and how we view things on that call so you can check it out before you even even commit so yeah anyway exactly. without- like um Oh, I'll just, I'll just say it, Tom. Yeah, I mean, like Tom and I know it's, it's interesting. Like, you know, if you said to me like a year ago, oh, online ski coaching, I would have been like, that's, that's just a joke, mate. <laughs> you know, and yeah. but we really have realized recently, like how good it is, uh, how possible it is, and like, you know, the benefits from the clients have been remarkable. So, yeah, as Tom said, uh, anyone who signs up for the ten uh, week program, we're offering also free consultations. Uh, for the 10-week program too. So you can come in, uh, get a listen from me and Tom, see if 
see if it's right for you. And uh, of course, if, if you appear to be right for the program, we'd love to invite you in. So yeah, right. just, um, just sign up and fill out our form. Cool. All right, without further ado, let's get into the interview with Charlie Raposo. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Global Scheme Podcast. Today we have a special guest, uh, one of my closest friends uh, who I've known for a long time and we've been skiing together for a long time as well. Uh, his name is Charlie Raposo and Charlie's one of um, Great Britain's best ever GS skiers. And, you know, I've been watching Charlie's career uh, closely for a number of years and I've also had the pleasure of um, training with Charlie uh, on and off snow and, and, you know, being his friend for uh, many years. So Charlie, welcome. So nice to have you here. It's very lovely to be here. Thank you to you and Tom for having me on. Yeah, pleasure. It seems like there's a, a, a bit of a theme, hey, Sam? We spoke to Harry Laidlaw last week, who's like yeah. uh, one of the better G, GS skiers coming out of Australia. And now we're talking to um, another, you know, not such a big skiing nation, really, but someone who's really climbing the ranks and um, and like, super impressive i mean uh, I, I i saw your post today charlie from some gs training and uh yeah it's like a video game the way you ski it just doesn't it looks like so playful and uh like just stuck to the snow and fast so yeah it's awesome it's um it's it's, it's coming along it's um you know training training's in a really good place um, yeah. I'm trying to just push the, the boundaries there and figure out what's really possible. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it didn't happen overnight. It's certainly been a, we might be a small skiing nation, but it's certainly been, I mean, I've been racing since 11. I think I first met Sammy when I was 16. Sammy would have been 19 at the time. Skiing at that time, he was skiing with Harry Laidwell's brother, Lukey. Um, so it's been, um, you know, the circles have been, been been around for a long time and did, did yeah. you did you compete at um like whistler cup or some of those big uh or tofino is it the junior topolino topolino, topolino, topolino. That's topolino. yeah i did i never did whistler cup sadly because that looked like a whale of a time but i did do topolino which you know when you're 14 years old topolino is a life or death matter it was actually, uh, I, was on a, I was on a podcast recently talking about, uh, I was on a podcast hosted by my new sponsor, Mike Frank, a real estate company. And a lot of the questions were kind of about the, re the reflective atmosphere on ski racing, you know, and, and, and how you look back on things and, and then take those lessons and approaches into, into new opportunities. And I just, you know, when you are 14, it seriously is. Topolino is like live or die. You know, like if you're not the first seed, if you're not getting the best start number, like it's game over, you know, life is <laughs> over as you know it. Whereas now, you know, I'm, I'm 24 now and I'm like, huh, I really cared about that. I probably didn't need to, you know, <laughs> um, but I guess it's, it's all relative <laughs> to that moment in time, um, you know, and, and, and recently one of my uh, good racing buddies asked me, he's like, you think when we're 50, we're going to give a shit about like this 10th of a second that we were off in a ski race. And I was like, absolutely not like no chance but <laughs> yeah. when you're in the moment it is the most important thing out there hey sam yeah, i know i, I know you i'll oh, jump in now i know you've got a, a question coming up about um you guys in the lockdown period but 
just off uh, the top of my head, the first thing I want to ask is like, you know, for someone to get to your level uh, from Great Britain, you must have had something on your side. Would you, do you have an inkling to what that was? Like, are you a real technician? Are you just a hard ass worker? What do you think it is like as you came up through your junior years racing that made you end up now skiing on the World Cup? Um, it's, it's actually a really good question because I personally don't feel like I can knuckle down to one specific thing. I don't think I've ever struggled with work ethic. I don't think anyone will have ever called me lazy because I'm incredibly energetic. And especially in, in the years that I've been doing this at a, at a world level, you know, there's been no stone left unturned on, on the physical training side and, you know, all the other components that, that require the work. But I think from a young age, probably passion. I loved skiing. Like I loved ski racing. I loved everything about it. I wanted to know like all those finite details about who was who, what was what, you know, I, I was tuning skis at such a high level for a 16, 17 year old kid, you know, like all of those little bits that sort of compounded into to my love for the sport and love and enjoyment of the process of what I was doing. Um, so for sure, you know, there was some, some talent when I was younger and, and a lot of potential. And thankfully I was put in the right places at the right time to allow me to sort of channel that potential and, and grow with it. Um, and yeah, you know, it's a very different ball game now when you're in this kind of like world level than when you are a development athlete. It's honestly like two different sports. You can't really compare it. You know, the way you're training, the way you're racing, the way you're going about the progression is so different. Um, but I, if I had to put it down to one thing, if someone said, what was the one thing that got you from being, you know, 10 seconds out of your first ever British children's race to being, you know, by the time you were 14, the best child racer in Great Britain, and then, you know, whatever you were by the age of 18, 19, 20, it would definitely have been the passion because it allowed me to progress as quickly as possible. Cool. Yeah, it's, uh, I've got to say, Charlie, from what you said, I mean, I can, I can back you on that. <laughs> pretty much everything you just said because I was um quite impressed like just for our our listeners just to get a little backstory like as I said you know me and Charlie have been friends for a long time and uh when the COVID situation really kicked off we were both in Verbia and we ended up getting stuck there for what was like 10 weeks Charlie yeah nine weeks I think Yeah. yeah yeah and um like what ended up happening was you know Charlie just kicked into um off-season training like two months early and it was so great for me because i've been out of ski racing for about five years and you know without much to do except you know enjoy that we were in the mountains and so on i just decided to kind of shadow charlie in his training and it was like really awesome for me it was like super nostalgic and and so on but yeah like without a doubt i'd have to say <laughs> one of your best traits charlie is like what i remember from when i was racing was like a bit of a mission for you just seemed like uh so easy like your you know your work ethic was was crazy crazy good and i and even just the, down to the details like when you were you know considering you know equipment changing for the for the season and so on like you treated it as if you know it is like like you are in the the best in the world you know um it's like it's like such a a fine you know fine-tuned thing like everything you approach everything very uh, methodically 
And I reckon like that leads me into this question. So I saw, you know, how hard you're working from day one and it was a pleasure to kind of shadow you in that training and so on and just do like 700 workouts with you every week <laughs> for like <laughs> 10 weeks. But then, you know, you, like I went, I went back to Stockholm, you continued doing that for like three months, right? Like you just train every day, right? So um, can you just tell me, how does your training progress over the summer? If you can give like our, our listeners like an insight into, you know, we started with that bulk phase that you were doing. And then how do you make sure that like come ski time, you're as agile and as athletic as you are? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Sammy and I, just, just to add on to the list, Sammy and I basically were in Verbier for the lockdown. We got COVID at the beginning. So we spent, you know, <laughs> a week or two recovering from that and then basically that was my vacation this year after the season was having covid and then my ssc coach was like okay back to work so that was um that was a pretty shitty vacation but um yeah you know we that first phase that sammy joined me for which i have to say really helped mentally because there was none of that external motivation this year or none of that buzz in the gym it was everything was quite raw so, you know, you're really stripping back to like, okay, why do I want to do this? Why do I want to spend hours of the day in the gym? But for me, it's it's never, I never find myself having to ask myself, like, why do I want to do it? Because it's just the same way that like, you have to do your job. If your job is working in finance or whatever, you have to show up, you have to do X, Y, and Z. It's the same for me. Um, if I don't want my body to break, I have to do the work. Um, but yeah, that first phase, we had six weeks of, basically lifting quite high volume so like high high rep high weight um and eating like an absolute truck um which was as sam will remember a bit painful at times just trying to shovel food down <laughs> get the calories in um yeah. and then after that i i basically left verbier after that first six week cycle with Sammy and I went back to London and there we went. Now it was, you know, taking this, I managed to put on four and a half kilos in, in six weeks, which was great. Um, Can I ask, is, is that the then, heaviest you've been? Yeah. Heaviest I've been. I was always knocking around. I'm, I'm 171 centimeters. So five for eight for those. Um, listeners feet. Um, and I was always around, like let's say 72 to 75 kilos, like 75 are my heaviest, but normally like I finished the season when I was in lockdown with Sammy, I was 72 and a half kilos. Um, and I basically managed to get up to like 77 um, mm. as, as a dry weight in the morning. Um, and so it, it was it was a lot bigger, a lot thicker, you know, especially in the torso, you put on a lot of size in the summer in the torso as a skier, but you then tend to lose that during the winter because you just don't get that same stimulus you're only lifting once maybe twice a week and all the work is going through your legs when you're skiing but um yeah so got to that size and then when i got back to london it was time to get specific you know turn that turn that newfound muscle and and um hypertrophy into you know strength and power so all of a sudden the the reps went way down the weight went way up you know we were lifting as heavy as possible for a small rep range really turning that muscle into fast, explosive muscle, working on quickness, working on a lot of plyometrics. Um, I, you know, my physical strengths, I suppose, are I'm pretty agile and fairly springy in my hop, so I can move quite quickly. So it's not something we have to put a lot of focus into. 
if for us the focus there's a lot of focus on the cardiovascular work and trying to improve that system for me because that's something that definitely isn't so naturally gifted to me um so i have to put a lot of work in on that cardiovascular system so it's a lot a lot of hours biking running intervals all the rest of it which was um a lot to juggle in and amongst yourself this year because while in Verbier I managed to pull my calf running in the hills with bad sneakers on so for any listeners that do a lot of running always have good trainers and running shoes because that's not that fun so you know juggling all the you know when you're doing four heavy leg lifts a week and then you've got to do intervals on the bike there were days when I physically couldn't get my heart rate to where it needed to be for the session because my legs were so done so it was um it was a bit of management on that side, but um, that was how the rest of the off-season looked. It was basically from the beginning, which was very much borderline bodybuilder-esque training, into like, you know, we're getting ready to ski at that point. You know, we started skiing at the end of July, so it was, I think we had like 22 weeks of conditioning uh, this year before I got back on snow, which is a pretty revolting amount of conditioning. Um, no, sorry, I have that wrong. 22, 22 weeks of, um, of proper structure. Like that was including some of the first weeks of training camp. So it was, um, it was a real, real cycle, a handful of cycles. We were, I know we were chatting just before we started recording here. I think it's really interesting. Like, um, you showed us how much internal femoral rotation like how much internal hip rotation you have and you know given it's something i kind of do with clients is check that stuff i was quite shocked to see how much you had do you want to talk Mm -hmm. to us a little bit about like you know something you discovered about your own body and and how you've also focused on really trying to stabilize your hips and why and yeah i think it's um you know i had back issues started at 18 years old and then finally by the time I got to 22 it was really bad like I couldn't really ski um, without having some real hindrance with the way my muscles were in my back which was so overloaded um, so you know I went off to the Team GB intensive rehab unit back in England this was in like September October 2018 so basically you know realizing I need to stop prepping for the season and get my body back to where it needs or get my body to where it needs to be. And that was when I discovered I basically have hypermobile hips. Um, so effectively like very unstable hips, which means you've got a very lax pelvis. And in a sport where a ludicrous amount of pressure comes from the ground into your leg, or into your boot, into your leg, into your hips, and then into your back, that becomes a huge amount for your back to deal with. So my back has basically always worked to stabilize that hip. Um, so discovering that was, was certainly the first step and now it's management and it's been a lot of years of management. Um, is it tiresome, tedious and filled with admin? Yes, it's a pain in the ass. Like I still know you know, Dave Riding, British racer, he's ranked 10th in the world in slalom. He doesn't warm up. Yeah, he hmm. doesn't need to warm up for skiing. He does a lot of free skiing and slow drills before he gets into a course, but he doesn't have to like do the off-ski warm-up that I have to do before I get on snow. So am I envious? Yes, <laughs> it's, it's a pain <laughs> in the ass. But, um, that, you know, you're always learning as, as you move forward and the body is a really important component of this puzzle in ski racing. Um, so just you, uh, making sure I'm ticking over correctly and well-oiled. Do you feel, do, could you feel from all the work you've done, which is different from previous seasons, putting on more weight, 
when you got the skis back on and you started training, did it feel noticeably different? Not massively, no. Um, it just felt like I was more powerful and more stable, um, which was great. And, and that sort of happened every year since I was at the rehab unit. Um, because let me just do the math on the years here. Yeah, basically, I've just gotten stronger over the last three seasons. So I just feel more stability, more more of an ability to handle the forces and what happens in ski racing. You know, the equipment has become so aggressive and powerful that to control that, there needs to be a lot of strength and stability across your whole body. Otherwise, you just won't be able to. It's, you know, the sport evolves so much all the time, the way the equipment goes, the way the course preparations go, the speeds at which we're skiing. Um, so it's important just to to make sure yeah that that bulk is there and it hasn't definitely hasn't been a big noticeable difference but it's only four and a half kilos and it's four and a half kilos of muscle yeah i'm sure if i just slapped a five kilo weight vest on i'd probably feel a pretty big difference (laughs) yeah yeah and and like the other thing i got a chance um to see is you um like your lower legs are quite you've got a quite a bowed curvature in your in your tibia um like you put your feet together and your knees are still really far apart which some girls are really envious of right the gap um (laughs) but but you know do you my question to you is do you have to do much to your boots to accommodate that kind of stuff like is that an important piece in your in your equipment thankfully not too much no um like my boot alignment is not really obscure it's fairly straightforward because my knees actually do kind of bend back into like a semi-normal place. It's just that my shin is very bowed out. Um, you know, I, I started using actually custom orthotics for the first time in five years, just um, just this season, which has been a, a, a new step and a painful step, actually, because they're really sore. Um, but it's been a um, it's certainly been a productive move just to get a bit more of a direct feeling uh, and more contact with the ground from that so yeah it's it thankfully not been too too much work on that front because that that can be pretty frustrating when there's a lot of things you got to try out with the boots because there's just an endless list of things that needs to happen and if you get overwhelmed on the equipment side it can just be it can be a lot on the head to deal with yeah. Have you been on the Rosignol stuff uh, for a long time? Um, yeah, I have. I've been on Rosie now since um, 2016 was my first season. So this is my sixth year on Rosie. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So a lot, so, yeah. a lot of years to refine, um, a lot of years to refine, you know, how the boots are, even though the boots have changed during my time at Rosie, they changed uh, three years ago, I think, the shape. Um, and you know, equipment changes year by year. We're constantly trying different setups and models, but it's um, no things have been have been steady, which is great. Nice, nice, yeah, cool. I only asked that because I noticed a difference in uh, my skiing when I switched to a boot that accommodated my lower leg tibial bow like found it easier. So I was just, I was just interested if that was something you did or whether even the Rosignol boots are a little bit like that or. 
Yeah, I think um, tough to say, to be honest. I don't have all that much experience because, you know, it's, I was on head for five years and now I've been on Rossi for six. So it's not something I massively know about, but I know that um, based on the fact that ski racers don't make decisions because of comfort of the ski boots, mm-hmm. you can fit into any ski boot you want. It's just about knowing or having someone that really knows what they're doing as to how to fit that boot and make it work. Um, but it, it's so different, you know, like what is like the stiffest recreational ski boot, like a normal free ride boot. For me, like I feel like I can barely ski in that. It feels like such a noodle because of what I'm accustomed to. Whereas actually mm-hmm. it's not that soft of a boot, you know, so it's all relative as to what you're experienced with. If you're serious about stepping up your skiing skills, listen up. I've been working closely with the Carve team for over four years and they've just unveiled a groundbreaking feature, Active Coaching Mode. And here's the lowdown. Launch it at the top of your run and go through a quick calibration with 10 turns and it sets a baseline just below your current skill level. From there, every turn is a challenge, adapting on the fly to your skill, terrain and conditions. No fluff, just a gamified experience pushing you to ski better every turn. It does this by using a super thin insole lined with small pressure sensors and motion detectors. It's like having a personal coach analyzing your every move. And here's the sweet part. If you hit a hot streak with excellent form and you're in for double or triple points, it's addictive, rewarding. Like I said, it's a very gamified experience and it transforms every run into a step towards better skiing. If you're intrigued, and you should be, check out Carve and dive into active coaching mode. Just Google Get Carve to find out more and as a bonus, enter code GELLY15 to take 15% off. It's amazing. I've heard from the Carve team that now nearly over a third of the users are using active coaching mode when they go out and ski with it. So why not give it a try yourself? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point, Charlie, because like, as you know, I mean, I ski around in a, like a touring boot these days. <laughs> and um, I mean, the first time I jumped in them, like I, it was like a noodle. But, uh, you know, there's still like a, a 130 flex or whatever. But I found um, from ski racing that the, the balance I have in my boots has uh, helped a lot as well. Um, and it's funny what you said, uh, Tom, about the, the bow legs. Because when I think about it, you and Charlie have a similar lower leg, actually. Yeah. 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 yeah that's like what a, I see. Like quite a, yeah. And it's, so that's, um, that's an interesting point. Uh, Charlie, I've been thinking... Um, a bit about your season this year because i mean you know you you're skiing super fast in training and the world cup this year is very different because of corona like you know i mean you watch on tv there's like no crowds um and of course the whole tour is in europe can you give us a bit of insight into you know how the season's been going what's different um and also your skiing and the races so far yeah, it's certainly a very different environment. COVID um, has just disrupted everything for everyone. Um, you know, it's, it's just something we have to deal with. There's a lot more admin that goes into the logistical process of traveling, the testing that has to take place. Like, as you'll know, Sammy, it's not as simple as Formula One or Premier League football where you just show up at a stadium and you can arrive five days before and be in the same hotel and all you need is a gym and a football pitch or a, or a racing track that doesn't move or doesn't change. For us, like we've got to play into the fact the weather, the snow conditions, the type of slope that we're on 
for training pre-race. And sometimes that can have you on a totally different side of Europe and then figuring out the testing protocols in places that don't have, to be frank, that much infrastructure, you know, like a small little doctor's office or whatever. It can just be arduous, um, arduous rather. Um, so it's been, yeah, it's just, it is what it is. You know, the racing's still going on. And when you're in the start, to be honest, you don't really feel much of a difference. Like the cameras are still rolling. People are still watching. The races are still going on. There's still the same amount of things on the line. Um, so at the end of the day, that part is quite similar. And we're just really lucky to be able to compete and train anyway. Do, um, do, you, feel there's, do you feel there's any more like camaraderie between like all the athletes because there's less like crowds and and sadly, fans and stuff around sadly not because we can't we're all in our bubbles and that's one of the things uh, that's been really hard for all of us to deal with is, you know there's no socializing you can't really hang out with your mates you can't sit at tables with your mates that are on the tour um you know yeah you have conversations you're talking but like it's not really the same there's nothing that you can do outside of just like saying hi if you're on the same training hill or like wow. you know, seeing each other at a race mm. yeah that's oh, really actually, tough I'll, I want to touch on that, Charlie, because I mean, you know, I know you're like a, you're a social guy and like, that's, you know, part of how you blow off steam and like you, you know, you go out and like, you're always doing stuff, chatting to people uh, and so on. So, I mean, how's this season? Like, how have you adapted this season to, to not being able to, to do that and, you know, blow off steam the way you usually do? That is something, Sammy, that I am continually trying to work on. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not easy by any means. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like, as I said, I'm just lucky to be doing what I'm doing. And I got to, got to, got to take it for that, like at face value and accept that like everyone's making sacrifices to some extent. Like, yeah, I do think that there is a, there's something very performance enhancing for me about being able to be social and being able to let that pressure valve go. That right now is very difficult for me to do. So I'm having to find other ways to do that. But it's just very mm. difficult because at the end of the day, I need to protect myself from COVID. Otherwise, I can't be racing. And um, there's just not really any socializing or anything to do. You can't go out to <clears> restaurants. <throat> you can't go to, you can't go for drinks with friends, you know. And and that is not necessarily um, that easy. You know, I don't, I haven't been back to London. So I don't have that kind of busy, extroverted city vibe um experience that sometimes i feed off for a little bit at certain times during the winter so it's just yeah. um there's a little bit of just sucking it up and dealing with it and trying to find other other ways around it but thankfully it is 2020 our phones are not far away we've got facetime we've got texting whatever not that it's the same but at least we're not like totally secluded on our own um, but it is it's, it's definitely hard it's the hardest thing for me that's that's it's definitely the hardest year I've had as far as maintaining a level of like happiness for myself I suppose um, yeah yeah I still still feel a level of fulfillment my job's still going on it's still going well I'm still putting in the hours I'm seeing some benefit and reward um, from all of it so that's that's what's most important um, but you know the, the journey is not as fun as it usually would be this year I guess we can leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's funny. I mean, I mean, speaking of um, benefit and reward, I suppose, you know, because we're good mates, like I'm, I'm lucky to get that inside scoop from you whenever we just chat on the phone and, and whatever. And I know at the moment, you know, you're skiing 
really fast. Like in training, you've put down times with with guys that have been in the top thirty, and like you're you're really uh, you've really stepped up in the past uh, couple of years. <clears throat> and I want to ask you some questions about um, the the mental uh, game and like what you've been doing to to work on the mentality and like perhaps like what's helped you really step it up uh, in the past two years. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm actually uh, currently working with a mental coach that I started working with quite recently. That's been fascinating, um, very scientific bro- approach to mental training. Um, you know, his experience, he's done a lot of work in motor racing, specifically in Formula One and currently right now. And that's the thing I really like is, you know, a lot of these mental guys have got a big repertoire of what they've done. But like, what are you actually doing right now in this moment in time? And, you know, Chris is his name. He's working in motor racing currently with a lot of Formula One drivers that are going through the same thing that I'm going through to some extent. We live in a very different world than we did 10 years ago. You know, what the access that people have to the athletes, to the insight and the sport, to the emotions is far more than it ever used to be. There's just more exposure, I suppose. Um, mm. So it's nice to work with Chris and be able for him to relate to all of those things. Um, and just everything else is actually going on around the sport as well as in the sport itself. Um, on the mental side, tough to say, you know, training training's obviously going well, but training's training, racing is racing. And I've definitely had some strong races over the last two years. You know, last year, unfortunately, was plagued a little bit by some, some niggles and injuries towards the end of the year with my neck and back. Um, and the start of this year has been a mixed bag so far. There's been some good stuff in European Cup and some tough stuff in World Cup. There's been, been a tough bag of races so far. And this is the thing. It's also really easy to define it like, oh, it's been a mixed bag. You know, I've only done, how many races have I done? Six, seven races. You know, and if a couple of those don't go as they, 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 they could do or the conditions aren't quite suited to you or whatever, all of a sudden you start to feel like, oh, like maybe it's not, not going as I'd like it to go. It's like, well, no, that's not the case. Like this sport, things change in, in, in a matter of hours because of exactly that reason. The variables, the slopes, the snow conditions, there's just so, there's such a different bag of what you're going to get that race weekends can go really well for some and bad for others um and it's just continuing to trust what we're doing like thankfully you know i think november was when i finally really dialed in the work we'd done over the summer we did a lot of work on changing some technical components of my skiing becoming a lot more solid i always and this sort of stems back to the the hip issues we were talking about earlier um my left-footed turn so my right turn has always been the weaker turn for me. Um, it's always been one where I'm, I'm a bit more to the inside and anchored over the inside ski. I start the turn a little bit too early, so I don't quite go enough across the hill. And subsequently, because of those two things, there's like a yeah, there's a lack of trust as opposed to the right-footed turn, I guess. Um, you know, and it was very prominent in the years past. And finally, when we finished last year, I was like, if I want longevity in this, if I want to be in the top 30, like these turns can't happen anymore. Um, yes, you know, I can ski fast if I don't have mistakes, but the moment it gets bumpy or difficult, that left-footed turn becomes a bigger weakness. Um, so we did a lot of work over the summer to, to change that. And subsequently, when you make big changes like that, you do go a bit slower before you go faster. Certainly notice that. 
Um, and then finally in November, I really found that gear again that I needed. And, um, you know, thankfully, we've, we've, we've shown that in some races. You know, I was fourth in Austrian national champs. Um, and I think I was 11th in the last European Cup GS. With I had some mistakes in the first round, I was fourth on the second round and moved up to 11th. So we're, we're close to, you know, where we want to be and where we need to be. And now we're coming into 2021, you know, fresh races on the calendar in World Cup and European Cup, as well as World Champs in February. And just looking to um, continue to develop that on. And, and I suppose on the, on the mindset, Sammy, I... You know, you're always going to sometimes be be fighting some negative thoughts or some demons within you. But I guess I just kind of look at myself and be like, be a badass. Like, be the athlete you want to be. Be the man. Like, whatever it is on that day, like, show up, get the job done, push the limit. You know, and like, we've done a lot of training under fatigue. Um, like, a lot of ski training on tough slopes where you've really got to push the limit under fatigue in the last two months for that reason. You know, just because it's like, I don't care how you feel. Like, you show up, you deliver. I remember one day in Cornertal, I hadn't been feeling that well. I was super low on energy. It was really long days there, and I was exhausted. But like we showed up, tough course set, and it was like, it was just like, let's push really hard, you know, and like pushed hard for three rounds. I was like so in the tank. I was so tired, but being able to get that out of myself was was important. That's awesome. Remo- I don't know if you've seen that documentary with uh, Idris Alba. Do you know the... the um actor uh like from britain yeah, anyway yeah. you know what and he becomes like he's always wanted to be a fighter um and he goes and does a whole and he's an actor right and in between doing movies he trains to be a fighter and do a professional fight and yeah he goes like the big bits that really help him are when he gets pushed um yeah well beyond his normal limits and the coach is like nope this is where you got to like pull it out you know, even further. So you're saying you're, you're getting into that kind of training. Yeah, exactly. And I, I actually think it's sweet. Like people, um, people underestimate like how tough some of those actors are when it comes to their training. Like they're tougher than a whole handful of athletes out there. Like the things that some of those guys have had to do, you know, Chris Hemsworth lost, um, he lost either... Yeah, he lost 15 kilos of muscle to film Rush as James Hunt, the racing driver. You know, like Matthew McConaughey basically became like, you know, wanted to look like a drug addict for, um, yeah. was it Dallas Bars Club? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like those guys go through some heavy transformations and like work to play some of the roles that they do. Um, and you just kind of have to have to crack on and deal with it. And it feels good to be a, push yourself beyond that limit and, and feel like you're you're beating yourself and, and your own your own your own inhibition to stop when you push yeah. past that is a very rewarding feeling of like yeah i'm gangster like I, I'm, I'm not you know i'm not, not for a second thinking i'm gangster i'm actually pretty soft but you know it's um it's the closest i'm ever gonna feel to like 50 cents so i'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll roll with it uh, yeah Hey, what is, uh, can I ask uh, quickly? Sorry, Sam. I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, go for it. You said you changed, so you had to, you worked on this on your left footer. What does that, what does that look what does that like? Look like? Oop, there we go. That'll... Charlie, if this bit stuffs up, we can, I can edit it out. So just you talk, you see how that sounds. Take the AirPods out. Does this work? Oh, that works now. 
Okay, perfect. Do you want to just yeah. repeat? Tom and then yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll just repeat the question. So I'm interested in hearing what does changing your left footer technically actually look like? Like what would we be seeing if you were doing that? Does it involve a bunch of uh, runs with video analysis? Are you doing specific drills? What is it? Yeah, so it's, um, you know, it was um, obviously basically coaches are videoing every run anyway that we're doing when we're training. But it's um, it wasn't anything that I can't already do. You know, I did occasionally make really strong left footers where I was really over that ski and not tipping in or not moving away from the, the ski at the top of the turn too early. But it was just like, you know, I was making 10, 20% of the turns like that. Whereas now it's up at, you know, 70, 80%, um, depending on the condition, sometimes it's closer to 95%. Um, it took a lot of incredibly intent focus over the summer, like, like to the point where it's exhausting. Like it, it seems like such a small change to make, you know, it's fine. Just like get a bit more over your ski, like, you know, get your hand down a little bit. But like actually to do it like over and over again, like is, is exhausting. And there were days when I really struggled to do it as much. And it was like, you know, three steps forward, one step back. Because some days like you just weren't quite in tune with your body how you needed to be. Um, but it just took doing it in quite a smart manner. You know, you had to start on slopes that were better suited to being able to make changes and then kind of progress it from that. Yeah, if you all of a sudden were on a pretty steep slope and you were like, okay, get over your left footer, you know, it's such a kind of foreign movement. Um, and you just have to do it a lot of times to sort of ingrain that into your body, you know, and now my left footer is generally as long as I'm, it's a mix of technique and tactics. You know, if the tactics are off, the technique will be off. The technique is off, the tactics that you want won't work. So the two kind of go hand in hand when it comes to skiing a course, you have to be putting yourself in the right position line-wise for your body to then move in the right way um so it's just uh yeah you know it, it was it was a it was a summer of a lot of intent focus and work and to the point sometimes where like you know for example in September I really wasn't very fast yet and that was not that easy to deal with but I just had to continue to trust that we were on the right path and it was the right decisions that we were making yeah cool okay because I remember I remember hearing Dave riding uh worked on I think one side just but so boring like just over and over and over and over and over again and i think the listeners would find it interesting that at, at this top level like you are really drilling in that kind of stuff which is would you say it's tedious almost yeah it's it's <laughs> tedious is probably a way to look about it you know dave spent a lot of years working on his um i think dave was working on his left foot turn as well actually um years drilling it in and it is um certainly tedious and but that's why you know the work is done in the summer because come winter time you can't really continue to refine it you just um or you can't continue to try and change it you're just refining it you know you're just like mm. getting the feeling that you want and being like content with that and and building from that yeah yeah that's such a interesting insight charlie just into like the the work it takes and uh and putting in the hours on on the boring stuff um and it kind of made me think of another question that i have and this season uh you know we've spoken about this charlie like it's just crazy how on the at the top level of the world cup the um 
the rankings have changed quite a lot. And like a lot of the guys that we thought, you know, after Marcel Hersher retired, were going to dominate, haven't dominated as much. And like, why do you think that is? Do you think that these young guys are just putting in like way more work than anybody anticipated or, you know, like what is this kind of new era that you think we're going into in the world cup? Um, I don't, I definitely don't think it's a work thing, you know, like it's, um, you know, it's not that these young guys are working harder than anyone else. Like, to be honest, if I have to give the work ethic card to two guys, say, let's, let's just giant up there. Let's talk about giant slalom right now. Like, Philip Zubchich and Jean Kranjek. Those are two guys mm. that have been very good for a long time, but the last couple of years have just continued to graft, believe, push, and are now like two of the strongest skiers on the World Cup in GS. Um, you know, Alexi, Alexi's having a, a decent start to the year in GS. Um, you know, he's obviously going to shine in races that are more difficult, whereas, say, like Santa Catarina, where we had two World Cup GSs this year, it was so easy. It was such an easy slope that, you know, for guys like Henrik or Alexi, who are normally very strong, they weren't able to shine in the same way. Um, you know, Henrik maybe hasn't had the pace that people expected this year, but that can happen sometimes. And, like, I'm certain he'll, he's someone that will dial it in very soon. You know, there's so many other, other variables that are going into it that a lot of people don't see, like when it comes to if equipment is working or not. And, and other stuff that you just never really know. Um, you know, equipment's such a big role in everything that happens. And, and especially like brand to brand. Sometimes brands have really good days. Sometimes brands don't have good days. And that can depend on the snow, the type of course sets, all the rest of it. So I think it's um, no doubt there's some really talented young guys. Um, and a lot of guys that have been good for a long time that have found that next gear. You know, I'm thinking like Gino Cavizzo, 1992 born. He was on the podium for the first time in Solden. Yeah, Gino, Gino has not exactly come out of nowhere. He's been in the top 15 for, for three years now, four years. Um, and for some guys, it just takes a while to get to that point. Whereas then you've got guys like Atlee McGrath and Lucas Bratton, who are just like ludicrously talented young boys that are just wicked good at skiing. But do I think that they like put way more work on than anyone else? No, not that I, not that I see. You know, but there's a lot more than than even what another athlete's going to see, and the mental aspect of the sport is also a huge component to that puzzle. Um, so I just think naturally there's always a big shift in in ages and and people that are there. You know, slalom two years ago saw a big shift. Um, a lot of young guys started to throw it in, and it seems like giant slalom has has happened last year and this year with a bit of that shift. Um, you know, when the older guys retire and there's space for new guys or new guys start to beat the older guys, all of those things happen. And then you end up with what we're in now, which is quite an exciting time with a lot of new faces. Yeah, it's it's funny, uh, uh, Charlie, what you just mentioned about equipment and like how brands have good days and brands also have bad days, you know, and, and I suppose like amongst the athletes, there's, you know, people almost look at it like, world cup um, sorry like formula one as well like it is you know we you know you pay attention to the factory teams and so on and i want to ask you a question about your equipment um we spoke about this with harry how being from like a non-traditional skiing nation it can be pretty hard to get the best equipment and i know now especially for you i mean you have a great setup with your team you know you have a technician uh, you've been on rosignol for a few years 
Uh, can you just give us a bit of insight into what it's like for you and um, that journey for you to, you know, start getting really good equipment and how that's been? Yeah, I think um, I've always been quite lucky and fortunate, I suppose. I had a very good relationship with Head before I left Head. You know, I left Head just because I felt the need for a change and um, and I felt that there was just a bit of inconsistency with the, with the material I was getting from Head. Uh, and that was, you know, that was a long time ago. It was back in 2015. Head up doing very well now. Um, and I went to Rosignol then and, and I've just built a very good relationship with them ever since. Um, and I've been super lucky and fortunate and very honoured to, to have their support and their belief in me. You know, even last year when, yeah, the, the start of the season was strong, but it didn't, it didn't end strong last year. And I basically had to take time out for injuries and then obviously COVID struck and they had to cut athletes and I wasn't one of them. Um, you know, so that was obviously a, a very nice uh, sign of good faith from them, I suppose. Um, so it's never been an issue on the material front, um, but it can be very difficult. Yeah, if you don't have the results and the potential that, um, that you need and you're trying to compete at a high level, then it can be very difficult to get a hold of the material that you need. Because when you're skiing on, on ice and certain conditions like this, if you don't have what you really need and what's going to be fast, you can be, you know, there can be seconds of difference sometimes. Um, and that's not exactly a situation you want to find yourself in. So I guess, I guess my conclusion is just I'm, I'm fortunate that I have always had that experience of having good equipment and haven't had to, to fight for it. Um, so yeah, that would, that would be my answer for that one. Hey, Charlie, when was the last time you skied on like a non, like your level fist type ski? Oof. I, uh, when I was first year fist, so when I was 16, that was, <laughs> wow. that was the last time I skied on a like mass produced race ski ever since then it's always been um you know made in the race room you know they're still made by machines but effectively like made in the race room skis yeah in a mass produced factory because yeah, in the race room like you've got a guy that is taking all of those components of the ski and they're layering them all into the mold and then they put them into the press they take them out of the press like it is a handmade process you know, Rosie, they can only make, uh, I think they can make like a maximum capacity, they can make 40 skis a day out of the race room, which is not a lot when you think that, you know, I mean, I'm going through at least like 10 GS skis a year. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, they can do four athletes like me. I'm bearing in mind, um, I'm pretty small order on the sense that, you know, I'm a, just a GS racer. I'm not Henrik. You know, Henrik will be going through 60, 80 pairs of skis yeah. a year. No I, I say that because like, I think, like if you go through YouTube or like forums and stuff, people, recreational skiers are always asking like, how do you ski on ice? And I don't think there's this understanding of like, even if we, if we gave you a pair of skis from Intersport, you know, just off the shelf and said, go ski the slopes you ski on, you wouldn't even be able to get grip on that. Totally. And also like a lot of these people say that, right? Like, they're like, oh, how do you ski on ice? And they're on a ski that they've been using for a week since they last serviced it. And they probably hit a lot of rocks. Like, that's game over. 
Like you hit yep. one run and that's game <laughs> over. You've got no grip on ice. Like I went, I went skiing over Christmas in Verbier and I took a um I have a powder ski that's like quite skinny. It's 192 and 98 underfoot. So it kind of actually turns all right on the piste when there's like decent snow. But it was like it had rained the night before, so the piece were icy as hell. And on it, I couldn't turn. I couldn't buy a turn. I straight lined it everywhere. Like I, I, I made maybe three turns all day because I was I'm not even gonna bother. Like this is absolutely revolting. Um, and I know Sammy will relate to that. It's um, you know, it, a, a big part of it is not just a ski. Now, if you took a shop Rosy GS ski and it was tuned the right way, you'd easily be able to to rip on ice. But like you need that clean edge and people don't understand how important that is. Like if people are, I want to make my skiing better, like my number one tip, get your skis service like at least every other day, maximum every third day. If you're like trying to look for like piece performance and like arcing performance, it's it all comes down to how the edge is prepared. 100%. Yeah, 100%. I agree with that. In South Bay, we have a rock ski that we leave up on the glacier every day. And is literally just getting from the top of the train down to the glacier and then to get up uh, up the T-bar and back to the train at the end of the day. But I also use that ski for an inspection run and it's the most terrifying run of the day because I can barely <laughs> slide on this ski. Like it's absolutely <laughs> shredded. <laughs> so I'm there like, you I go, everyone. It. You heard it from a World Cup racer. Yeah. This is how to ski on ice. It's pretty much... 90% down to, well, really, it sounds like even 100%, not even a World Cup racer can ski on ice, even on a, on a proper ski. If there's, yeah, if you've hit a couple of rocks, I know the same thing. As soon as I hit something, I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, day's ruined. I need to go and tune my skis because I, I just can't bear the feeling. You can feel it straight away where that nick is. The ski just yeah. starts to slip. Uh, totally. Guys, if you uh, rock in the right place, that whole edge folds over and you no longer have an edge. It's not an yeah. edge to ski, you know? Nothing yeah. Just just to offer a glimmer of hope to those who hate tuning skis or never do, I have a confession to make, guys, uh, that I haven't <laughs> I haven't tuned my skis or a single pair of skis once since I retired from racing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you mostly ski powder now, so. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, that's yeah, true. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna play the devil's advocate there, which is Sammy spends basically ninety nine percent of his time off the piece. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did. Uh, you know, Charlie, last year I did ski down. Uh, what is it called? A La Fosse, La Fosse yeah, de Valde in in yeah. um, Shortly after uh, you raced the World Cup there, and yeah. my God, like it was brutally icy like brutally icy and i was on a um i was on a actually a piece ski first time i've been on a piece ski in a while and it was just like a like a kind of stock stokely race ski and yeah i mean that's it like you have to be so on it you know it was still possible but i had to be so on it so precise with my pressure on the outside ski um to even get like a remote amount of grip and there was no room for error it wasn't like being on the GS skis back in the day, freshly tuned, where it's like you you feel that edge is there, like no matter what, it's like you and you kind of can feel how far inside you are, um, you know the difference in that. It's just um, yeah, like it's it's remarkable how much like it is down to the equipment. Yeah, it's um, 
it's not i actually literally just pulled out that video there sammy to check it out <laughs> um you kind of shredding some arcs there but it is like you you know you need a you need something solid under your foot if you're really trying to rip some arcs on like a you know on, on moderate to difficult terrain regardless of the snow unless it's like the best hero snow in the world if you don't have like that nice clean edge you're gonna have a tough time yeah yeah 100 percent um and Charlie, like just moving on to uh, another question I have for you, like I thought was really interesting. So, you know, like you're a World Cup skier from a non-traditional Alpine nation. Uh, you know, I have been before Harry, our last interviewer has been before. Um, and it seems like in recent years, the non-traditional nations have actually started to really kick it up. You know, I mean, I think I remember from my career anyway, like it was always it just didn't feel like there was anyone really from the non-traditional nations that was uh, fully crushing it. Um, who do you think are the best guys at the moment from the non-traditional nations and who should our listeners keep an eye out for this season? I mean, Davey Riding, start there. Yeah, 100% Dave Riding is like, he's, le he's yeah. leading the flag, yeah. I can't, can't um, flout uh, Alice Robinson on that one. She's done an awesome job as well, a small nation. Um, what else have we got? It's quite a difficult question to answer, actually. The thing is, is, this is the interesting thing is, you know, even some of the nations you'd expect to be big are actually not that deep with talent at the moment. Like, let's take Sweden, for example. Sweden was so strong 10 years ago, you know, five years ago. Yeah. But recently, they, they, they just missed a development gap and they don't have too many guys in between. You know, they, they've got some really strong skiers, no doubt. You know, on the speed side, they've got Felix Monson, Alex Cole. On the tech side, they've got Christopher Jakobsen, who's killing it in slalom. And then they've got uh, Matthias Rongren, who's a strong GS skier and gets some top 30 results. But mm. they're not what they were when they had five, six guys in the top 15 at once, you know? And nations go to that. Same with Finland right now. I think someone made a point to me the other day, and I don't know if this is necessarily right or not because I haven't looked. But like we at Great Britain have more skiers in the top 150 in the world than Finland do right now. Crazy. Crazy when Finland's actually like an Alpine nation. Um, and we are certainly not an Alpine nation. Um, so I think it just varies. There's definitely, um, I think the reason why small nations are maybe performing a bit better now than they used to is, is probably the access. You know, travel has become easier. Uh, the world we live in is easier to sort of, relocate yourself to the, to the like one thing i've always found uh that is difficult for say australians um and i've always made this point to harry is like harry is away from home for so long you know like, mm. yeah we talked about this actually this is okay. a, that's a real I disadvantage i know he struggles with it because you just don't get that grounding it's really difficult to recreate your home vibe you know like back in um this summer for me example i left london july 7th and then i went back for four days in september and that's it and london is home all my stuff is at home that's where i feel grounded and home um my parents are living in portugal so it's nice to go down there but it's not quite the same as london that's where i can really like um settle in and, and channel that other side of me you know that that extroverted energetic side um and the reason was, was obviously because of COVID and, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have the place in Verbier. So I stayed there a lot during the, um, like, like during September in between training camps. And I loved it, you know, had some friends come out. It was great, no doubt. 
to the point where in October I was really thinking about like maybe I should just relocate to Innsbruck like it'd be so easy like the quality of life when you like for example I finish a training camp in Sarsfay and instead of flying instead of a nine hour travel afternoon back to the UK I just drive two hours to Verbier and I could go for a swim in the afternoon you know down on the lake like that that doesn't happen if you're going back to London so I kind of thought maybe I should just go to Innsbruck like it'd be such a good quality of life during the winter but I mm. very quickly realized, like, actually, no, like, it's just, it's not home, you know? And, like, as much as I, there's a lot of cool people, I got friends in Innsbruck, like, it's not what I love. And, like, I love London. I love that home culture. I love that city culture. And I need, and, and like, that, that feeling and the vibe that you get. So I've always, and, and Harry very much is like that with Australia. You know, Melbourne is home for him. And I think it's very difficult to be away from home for that long. Whereas, and that's one of the things I've always saw has been a big advantage for the Austrians or the Swiss, you know, they get to swing by home a lot more frequently than say a Brit even would, because just the admin of getting on a one and a half hour flight can add up because that's still a, you know, six, seven hour training day, uh, travel day door to door. Um, so I think it, it's tough, but uh, you know, the way um, the world has moved and how easy it is to fly, well, was easy to fly and was easy and is easy to communicate with people over FaceTime, et cetera, has made it a bit easier for the Aussies and the Kiwis. But I think that's definitely a hurdle that's not easy to get over. And Harry's, Harry's made it work a little bit by getting a place in Innsbruck and finding a bit more of a route here in Europe, but it's um, still a battle, he has for sure. Mm. Hey, do you mind if, if I ask, we were talking to Harry about uh, like I guess tactics or line, like how much of your training or even now like is focused around changing the way your 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 line and tactics are in races. Oh, um, so like how about this? I'll ask. I'll ask you this. So, mm. Solden, yeah. if you were to self-analyze yourself what would have you changed? Would have you changed a technical thing? Would have you changed a mental thing? Or would have you changed a line thing? Solden would have been solely mental. I, I got mentally beaten by myself and Solden. Um, so to be honest, Solden was kind of over before I even left the start gig. Um, huh. I, I, I built up such a level of like, somehow, I don't know why I thought I had no expectation, but clearly I was wrong. I was very tense very high pressure there was no autonomous movement it was very like robotic and and like overthought process um so i think it's difficult to say you always have like say you always have like technical intentions aren't going to change you always want to rate make the right technical moves tactical mm -hmm. intentions you lay those out in inspection as to what you think you need to do but those can change super quick depending on conditions sometimes you can just read that set wrong um like a lot of the time we train on, you know, slopes that we've skied multiple times and you're a bit more accustomed to, whereas sometimes you're racing on a slope you've never skied on before. You might have hill skied, but you've never trained. So you don't necessarily understand the natural flow of that slope. So it can be, you know, a little bit more difficult potentially um, to gauge. But um, it's a balance of the two. It's a the three, I should say, tactical, technical, and mental approaching. Um, so, so it's difficult to say. Mm. There's certainly a, a balance of all of them, and there's there's times where one is more of a issue than another. 
Like, like, is there something in you, in the way you like you've been working on with your line, like this season specifically? Is there one thing you're like, oh, I'm really trying to change that, or the way you transition, or something? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is um, ski racing right now is basically like you just cannot over ski an inch. Like everyone's going so tight, making such a short arc in GS. And that's like, that's the real ticket to, to being fast is it's really down at the gate and strong through the arc, like big loopy skiing. It just doesn't work anymore. Um, yeah. You know, and you see that on the world cup, I won't, won't name who, but there are some guys that are a bit more loopy and it's just not going to, it's not going to be fast enough against guys that are going so direct and strong and powerful. You know, a good example is Atlee McGrath in Alta Badia, any of the viewers that, or any of the listeners here that watch that race, you know, he was so late the whole way down the pitch. Like it looked like, you know, he was like just running such a low line, but was just no panic at all, was able to pull it off. Subsequently skied way less distance than anyone else and was crazy fast while doing so. Um, so that's kind of the tactical approach to it is always like, how can I push the line to, to the most? And in training, it's the same thing. It's, it's looking at it and going, yeah, I think I can really push here and, and, and running with that and hoping that you can then pull that off. Because generally, if you put yourself in a position of, of needing to get that ski to turn, you'll make it turn. Like if you're round and high and tentative, it's never going to, like that's when you almost have more trouble than when you're pushing the limit. Because when you're pushing the limit, you're really dynamic and your body moves in the right way to adjust for how tight that turn needs to be. Yeah, interesting. Cool. Thanks Charlie, for answering that uh, one. <laughs> Charlie, I've never skied on these uh, these newer GS skis, the 30-meter radius GS ski. Um, but I remember transitioning from the 27-meter radius GS ski to the 35-meter radius GS ski and you know, how like much more precise and how much, you know, I had to step up the precision of how I was skiing and how like on the outside I was. Do you think that, you know, going back to the 30 meter ski, that's why everyone's so capable of skiing these crazy lines? Um, I think for sure the ski turns a bit tighter. I mean, for context, look, right, there's new parallel GS discipline, but there's 21 meters between the gates. You know, and in Lek, that was not a problem. Like, that was easily doable. It was actually almost fun to ski the parallel in Lek. Um, mm. You know, those skis were turning quickly. Um, you know, some more than others. I One model of the Rossi ski turns really nice and quick, despite it being a 30-meter radius. Um, so I think, yeah, that's allowed us to, to risk a bit more and go tighter with the line, whereas the 35, you just couldn't, you couldn't cut the line like you could on a 30 meter ski like a 30 meter ski you can get away with a lot more which subsequently means we can push the line but it's, yeah, the same thing happened with the 35 meter ski that first year Ligeti was skiing figure of eights down out of Adia, and he was fast as hell but by the end of that 35 meter era Hersher had figured out how to go pretty pretty direct on those things and use a lot of muscle to make that work and to be powerful. Um, so I think it just naturally, the discipline of all that, like slalom right now is crazy. Like, you know, the back slalom used to be like 15, you know, 13 to 15 meters almost, you know, and just like huge, big slalom times. Nowadays, it's so tight and quick. 
it's like they're on ice skates, those guys, and they have to turn so quick and so direct at the gate and short with the pressure. Like guys like Vinatza or Clement Noel, like how like direct and tight they're going. And it's a lot of what Dave has had to work on and has, and has really started to find his gear on is like how to go more down to that gate and direct and quick. You know, Dave's always someone that's going to have a bit more loop in his skiing. And that's a, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to be as fast as the other guys, but it's um, you got to find that happy medium. Yeah, right. That's uh, that's a good insight for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think here's an yeah. interesting one. Yesterday, for example, we we were training at Hinterrad, Sammy, which you obviously have experience with. It's a for anyone that doesn't know, this place is amazing. It's like one of the best training places in Europe. <laughs> but it's literally a farm with one T-bar. It's owned by a guy called Peter, and he just produces the most amazing surface the whole time. And it's like it's it's so calm and chilled. It's so good. You drive right to the bottom of the hill. There's never any stress. It's my favorite place in the world to train because it's just like, it's so easy and logistically perfect and the slope's great. And, and actually it's a really good challenging GS slope. Yeah. And we did four runs yesterday, right? We did four runs all at race intensity, um, all in the finish. Run one, three, and four with a, a ski model that is like, a, it, it's a little bit harder to turn and control but it's more powerful and like on the flats, it's um, it's really fast. Like basically, it doesn't hook out the turn. Like it really wants to go down the hill out of the turn and like down to the next gate. And then run two was on a ski that is a bit easier to turn and control for me. But sometimes it really hooks up out the turn, which can obviously cost you actually like, you know, a tenth, two tenths a turn if you're hooking and you get thrown a little bit out. But um. You know, we had all runs within four tenths of each other. The fastest run was the third run, which was, I think, two tenths faster than my first run. Um, but for example, my fourth run, like third and fourth run, we tried to bring more shape to the turn so I could be even cleaner at the top of the turn. Because as you'll know, Sammy, with Hinterite, that top bit, sometimes you're a little bit dirty into the turn, like like drifting a little bit into the top of the yeah, turn. Yeah, especially um, over those rollers. Yeah, exactly. Um you know, and like the first run, for example, I was just really down to the gate, like little drift and then on it right at the gate, you know, so like very little height into the turn. But then the fourth run, we tried to bring, you know, even more shape than the third run. The third run was fast. Fourth run tried to bring more shape, more clean. And it was like technically the way I skied and how it looked, it was the cleanest run, but it was the slowest run as well. Mm. Uh, and it's just interesting to see that, like, you have to find that happy medium. Like, it was nice to feel that. And I came down thinking, oh, that felt pretty, pretty sweet. And the one section I felt felt really sweet was um, from the pitch down to the flat there, like the main bit of the pitch there, Sammy. And it was the mm. fastest on that section, but only by four hundredths, or not even. All four rounds were within four hundredths down the pitch. So it was, like, massively nice. faster. Um, but, you know, I'd lost two tenths on the top and then I'd lost two tenths on the flat with a bit of a bobble. Um, so it's just, um, it's it's interesting to see how how the line is is so crucial and how you need to play around with it and find the right place to be. Yeah. And yeah. That's such a perfect hill to understand where you're at in all aspects of skiing, right? Like it's got rollers, the top's like a medium pitch. There's a really steep middle section for like four or five gates. And then it's just... <clears throat> uh, flat out to the bottom. I yeah. mean, that's pretty impressive having uh, only four tenths of 20 runs. Nice. 
Hey, we should probably uh, get Charlie, let him wrap up soon. So, um, yeah, Charlie, like, do you want to, like, uh, give some, you know, shout outs to people that have supported you in your journey so far? Um, and maybe even you're mentioning, like, because, you know, Sam's retired now, what are you going to do? This would be second question. What's your plan after you, you know, you're not going to race until you're 50. So what's your, what's your plan after racing? <laughs> no, no chance my body's lasting until I'm 50. Um, you know, time will tell. I've always taken a, I've always taken a sort of liking to working with people. Uh, working in, in, in sales, branding, marketing to some extent. You know, I've been selling kind of myself and my own brand for a lot of years um, as a ski racer. Um, so who knows what opportunities might work there. Like, obviously, I have a lot of um, amazing partners that I'm working with now, whether that's Knight Frank, who's on the uh, on my helmet, like my headgear sponsor for this year. Um, and hopefully for years to come, they're one of the biggest global property consultancy companies in the world. You know, property certainly something that interests me, seeing that my sister's in it, my mom's in interior design and has done development work. So, um, yeah, that's an interest to me. Who knows? The world is certainly kind of a bit of my oyster after ski racing, and I need to see what other opportunities will open up to me while I'm still racing, because that's the biggest thing as well. So many opportunities do open up while you're while you're a racer, and you just have to see what, what comes of those. Um so time will tell. I'm not, you know, thankfully don't need to make that decision overnight. But yeah, as far as thanking people that have been involved, you know, there's loads of people to thank for, for me getting to where I am now. And you know, a lot of those people know who they are. But obviously my, my team that's directly around me now, Steph, Steph, who Sammy's actually met because they were in, um, Sam actually helped us out last year. He came as a bit of a assistant coach to um, Chamonix with us last year because we had some kind of crazy travel logistics so he picked me up from the airport in geneva while my coach and technician were driving over from germany um so no sam's met them you know steph steph Riney, our head coach you know obviously my parents for all their support over the years all the sponsors knight frank husky verbier v montan howden norkane um you know rosignol as well um yeah there's, there's, there's just too many even to list but um it's uh yeah, I wouldn't be here today without the support of many, many other people. And I know that you're only as good as a team around you. So it's um, it's certainly a huge factor. Mm. Um, my SNC coach, James, Chris, my mental coach. Yeah, the, the list goes on. So yeah. I ended there. But if anyone I did miss out, you know how much I appreciate all your support and everything else. Yeah, and I have to nice. say, uh, like, uh, like um, from uh, being friends with Charlie and and training with Charlie and being around Charlie a lot, I have to say Charlie is so good at representing the the brands that sponsor him and the people that sponsor him. So for all our listeners, for if anyone, you know, if you've been interested and intrigued by Charlie's story and what he said today, and you feel like you want to help out, you know, a really great skier from, you know, non-traditional Alpine country, then please uh, reach out to us and we'll um, put you guys in touch uh, it's, you know, these guys can use all the help they can get. They all love an underdog. <laughs> thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> thanks so much for, uh, thanks so much for taking the time, Charlie, to, to speak today and look forward to watching the, the upcoming races. Best of luck. For sure. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Sammy. It was great to catch up with both you boys and talk shop. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, Charlie. All the best. Ciao, ciao. See ya.
Some of you may already know that I've been advising Carve and working with the team for some time now. And this year, the team has come up with probably some of the most exciting developments to date. They've been working on representing the most fun parts of skiing in their system. They've developed three brand new metrics, progressive edging, early weight transfer, and one that measures the G-force in a turn. And that one, I have to say, I got to try it out this winter in Australia, and that is really fun. This new addition is going to be incredible for anyone who's looking to really push their skiing up a notch. Now, what's even more interesting for this year is the system now detects what terrain you're on and pulls that into your Ski IQ score. This is a huge change and a great upgrade because sometimes it would only really score well if you were skiing on perfectly groomed snow. Now it's going to accommodate and adjust whether you're skiing in steeper slopes, more chopped up snow or firmer snow. So this is a very big change that I think is massive kudos to the team to keep pushing and progressing the app even further. If you're the kind of skier that is looking for a tool to help push your technique that little bit further, then you should definitely check out what Carve can do. Use the code GELLIE15, that's G-E-L-L-I-E-1-5, to get 15% off for the next two weeks.